0: This podcast was produced from a webinar. For a more interactive experience with visuals, visit myamericannurse.com forward slash webinars. Thank you for joining us. We'll be discussing today such an important topic, medication safety, protecting your patients and your practice. I'm your moderator, Lili Jolinas. I'm editor in chief of American Nurse Journal. I'm also assistant professor and Patient Safety Section Director at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine at the University of North Texas Health Science Center at Fort Worth. Our objectives Mm -hmm. for today's webinar, identify the nurses role in ensuring safe medication practice, describe safe system design and the importance of nurse end user collaboration. And we'll discuss how technology impacts medication safety. We wanna make sure that you have these key takeaways after we conclude our discussion. First, gain a greater awareness of the issues driving medication-related mortality and morbidity. Learn about changes you can make to improve your day-to-day practice and support safe and reliable care. Explore medication technologies and their related benefits and limitations. Understand the nurse's role in addressing system opportunities for improvement and take advantage of ongoing learning to optimize patient-centered outcomes. Your faculty today, an esteemed panel, very, very experienced on this topic. Dr. Kim Keebler has joined us. She's an advanced practice orthopedic provider. She's also a member of the American Nurse Journal editorial board. And you'll note that she has already published three articles on the topic of medication safety in this year's journal. Joining Dr. Keebler is Patricia McGaffigan, Vice President of Safety at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and President of the Certification Board for Professionals in Patient Safety. Patricia is co-chair of the National Steering Committee for Patient Safety. Welcome to you both. Let's begin our
1: discussion today with Dr. Keebler. Thank you, Lily, for the introduction and for inviting me to participate uh, on this important uh, project. I think it's important to differentiate between knowledge and assumptions. Knowledge, and we've always heard knowledge is power, but knowledge is defined as facts, information, awareness, and skills that are acquired by a person through experience, education, and study. It's the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject, such as the indication for a specific drug. Knowledge is scientifically proven. And as a vital member of the healthcare team, nurses should maintain a thirst for knowledge. Science is dynamic and always changing, particularly in uh, the drug world. Assumption, on the other hand, is the act of taking possession of something. It is assuming of power or responsibility believing something to be true without scientific proof. An example is an assumption that glucosamine chondroitin is an effective supplement to reduce osteoarthritic joint pain. It has not been approved by the FDA, meaning that there's been no scientific data to support its efficacy, safety, or indication. Medication uh, development in the United States is through the Food and Drug Administration. That is one of 12 agencies under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, last year alone, in 2022, the FDA approved 37 novel drugs after an average of 51 new drug approvals every year since 2017. So there was a decrease this past year. There are over 19,000 prescription drug Products approved by the FDA for marketing in the United States. I think it's important to understand and appreciate the science that brings a drug to market. A drug begins as a molecule and takes between 10 to 15 years for development. It requires billions of dollars before used at the bedside. There are four phases in the development of a drug in order for it to be prescribed. Phase one is the discovery and development phase. Phase two is the preclinical phase, and that's when doses are determined, metabolism, excretion. These are usually small studies. And then the third phase are the large, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, which is the highest level of evidence. Um, it reduces bias and um, by having arms blinded. And then the fourth phase is when the FDA approves medication uh, for the marketplace. The FDA defines a drug as intended for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease. The FDA indication for a drug is what a drug should be used for. If medications are used off-label, those are medications that are not approved by the FDA. For an example, I see a lot of uh, Elavil or Amitriptyline used for migraines, but it's not. the FDA has not approved that uh, medication for that indication. So if someone is going to be using off-label medication, they need to have at least two peer-reviewed studies to support them in any professional risk situation. The package insert is uh, what the FDA has approved the medication for. I, I consider the package insert is one of the most important places to find information about a specific drug. A lot of times in clinical practice, I'll actually Google uh, the package insert for a specific medication to make sure I'm using the right dosage and the right strength for a specific uh, problem. But it also identifies um, the safety information, the doses and administration, different types. Some of them are, can be, you know, you know medications that can be parenteral and also uh, oral, for an example. Uh, the contraindications for the medications, warnings and precautions, adverse reactions, and the drug-drug interactions. And many of the package inserts also include the randomized controlled trial uh, data, so that you can look it up and further uh, investigate that medication. So where do you go to find the evidence? Um, we just talked about the uh, the package insert, but also. Understanding that randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials are what are the key and standard of care, gold standard of care, in bringing a drug to market. Systematic reviews are a combination of randomized controlled trials. And then the evidence-based guidelines are a combination of randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews, and usually written with a panel of experts, clinical experts, which also include nurses. It's important to also understand uh, aspects of drug class and using any uh, drug, if you're using one or or more than uh, one drug per class, that's considered polypharmacy. So for an example, NSAIDs, anti-inflammatory medications, are the most widely prescribed drug class. There are over 30 specific NSAIDs in the market, ibuprofen, Aleve, Advil, Motrin, Meloxicam, Naproxen. Ketorolac or Toradol, Indomethazin, and others, except for Celebrex. Celebrex is the only anti-inflammatory that is different than these others based on the um, way that it's metabolized in the body. The other ones are called COX-1 inhibitors, Celebrex is a COX-2 inhibitor, and it's the only COX-2 inhibitor in, uh, in the market. They all share the same medication uh, class as aspirin. So if you were to think about polypharmacy, if someone were to use topical diclofenac, for an example, and also using meloxicam, that's a, sign of, that's a type of polypharmacy. Somebody's taking an aspirin with an anti-inflammatory. That's polypharmacy. It's also important to understand the P450 enzyme system, the cytochrome P450 enzyme system. 95% of medications are metabolized through this enzyme system. And you can have drugs that either increase the efficacy or decrease the efficacy when combined together. So it's important to understand the enzyme system. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, too, as it relates to different uh, genotypes. The FDA black box is also an important thing to understand. Let's go back to NSAIDs again. Uh, There is a black box warning uh, by the FDA for uh, anti-inflammatory drugs because of the risk of thrombotic events um, in combination uh, with other medications. It can also precipitate uh, myocardial infarction and stroke, uh, which can be fatal. So when I'm prescribing an anti-inflammatory and in the orthopedic world, I always make sure that patients don't have uh, underlying cardiac issues when I'm considering that medication. So the standard of care, as I mentioned before, are the guidelines, and they determine uh, how to prescribe. And for an example, if I'm going to start a patient, a type 2 diabetic patient, on a, a hyperglycemic medication, I'm going to refer to the American Diabetic Association or the American Association of Clinical Oncology to help me decide which medications uh, to add to metformin. Metformin is considered the first line of medication. Another example is in 2017, The guidelines to establish normal blood pressure were changed by the American College of Cardiology the American Heart Association and nine other groups recommending a target of 130 over 80. Um, Everyone still is probably using 120 over 80, but other groups such as the American Academy of Family Physicians suggest that 140 over 90 is uh, the maximum uh, blood pressure target. So science changes. And science versus anecdote is really important. I uh, tie anecdote to assumptions. Uh, Science is knowledge, and using an updated blood pressure of less than 140 over 90 is considered the the science and a new practice change, whereas anecdote may be thinking it is the same blood pressure that's been used for years and years. So it's also important to understand the brand name versus the generic name in medicine and in pharmacy. We use generic names. Brand names are hardly used. Brand names of drug stays branded for about 14 years. And then when it goes off branding, that's when it's considered uh, generic. So, from a liability perspective, it's important to understand where to find the evidence. I love Hippocrates. If you haven't downloaded a free app on your phone, um, it's a good opportunity to find out uh, dosages of drugs and um, drug-drug interactions. We did talk about the package insert that also provides that uh, information. Documentation is very important, so you'll want to make sure that you always provide detailed information about the drug, the dose, the route, the time, and any adverse events that may happen uh, with that drug, and document any adverse events and what actions that you took. I think it's important for nurses to always question drug-drug interactions if somebody writes an order that doesn't seem right to question that. Um, if the dose doesn't seem right or the, you know, combination of medications don't seem right, discuss that with the prescriber. As nurses, it is our responsibility to question orders that are unclear, or unfamiliar. If it is unfamiliar, look it up. Uh, don't, I, I'm not comfortable uh, giving or prescribing a medication that I'm not familiar with without reading some of the original studies that brought that medication to market. So the more information we know, the more we will protect our practice. Also collaborating with interprofessional team members, your advanced practice providers, medicine, pharmacy, relying on other disciplines to help us uh, problem solve when we're in our clinical situation. And most importantly, remain current and informed. Study, stay alert and um, aware of some of the new guideline changes. There was a new guideline that just came out this past week Uh, From the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, Uh, they updated their chronic coronary coronary disease guidelines, and in there, they do not recommend the use of vitamin D and calcium, despite all of the data that I've been reading about. So it's interesting to see how these uh, guidelines um, actually identify and develop ways to manage certain diseases. It's also important to identify drug metabolism issues. If somebody has renal disease, obviously they're not gonna excrete uh, medications as readily, or somebody has hepatic issues, and 95% of medications go through the liver, we have to think about how long those medications are gonna stay on board if patients can't metabolize those drugs appropriately. I'm the director of the Multiple Chronic Conditions Resource Center, Um, Multiple chronic conditions is anyone that has more than two diseases at a time. And the more diseases that someone has, the more medications they have, and the more at risk they are for drug-drug interaction. So, again, paying attention to all of those medications and trying to reduce polypharmacy. Dehydration is a huge issue. Uh, If we're we're dehydrated, we're not excreting those medications. And, again, we're going to hold those medications uh, longer than what is traditionally considered, uh, you know, therapeutic time. I mentioned I was going to talk about the P450 system genotypes. So there's over 57 genes that have been identified in the P450 system. so not everybody metabolizes the same way. Caucasians are ultra-rapid metabolizers, where Asians and African-Americans are slower metabolizers. So when we look at equal analgesic dosing, we really have to take into account the differences in uh, genotypes. And in 2016, uh, the CDC identified unintentional death, which includes medication uh, problems and, you know, that's created morbidity and mortality, um, as the third leading cause of death in the United States. So we, you know, I, I applaud the American Nurse Journal for recognizing the importance of promoting uh, medication safety. Medications to use with caution, obviously opiates, uh, depressants, the benzodiazepines, the sedatives and tranquilizers, in 2016, the FDA did put a black box warning on opiates and benzodiazepines uh, combined use because of increased respiratory suppression. Stimulants or anything that stimulates the central nervous system is considered a uh, you know, drug of caution. Anticoagulants, obviously, diabetic medications and uh, anticholinergics. We have a paper that's going to be coming out soon on uh, anticholinergics and safety aspects of that type of medication. So as nurses, they most most of the uh, studies that I was looking at say that nurses seek and prefer information from colleagues and other clinicians at formal sources. Hopefully from some of the information that I've just provided you by using Hippocrates, um, reviewing the guideline recommendations, uh, the package insert, that you now realize that there's other places to go to get reliable scientific uh, information because your practice belongs to you. It impacts the patient, the family, the cost of care, and the outcomes. I was asked to briefly uh, discuss uh, Redonda Vaught case. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. Um, In December of 2017, uh, she was a floating nurse in the neuro ICU unit uh, at Vanderbilt University, and she confused Versed, which is midazolam, uh, benzodiazepine, with verconium, which is a paralytic in a 75-year-old female. She was fired for failure to comply with the five rights, the right patient, drug, dose, time and route, and you'll be hearing about that in the next uh, with the next speaker. But what I think is interesting, I read an article uh, with her uh, responding, and she said that she recognized that the legal system meant what they say, that everything you say can and will be used against you, when she said, I should have or I could have, instead of uh, you know what she didn't do. Um, but in March of 2022, she was convicted of criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an elderly impaired adult, And she was granted a judicial diversion that will expunge her conviction, and she's currently um, doing a three-year probation, but she did lose her license to practice. So as nurses, what do we do if not to make life better for others? This is one of my favorite places on Jekyll Island in Georgia, Um, but hopefully you've gained some information uh, from this short presentation. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Hello, I'm Patricia McGathigan. I'd like to start by extending my appreciation to the team at American Nurse and HealthCom Media. And I'd also like to thank Drs. Julinas and Keebler, Dr. Keebler, for a great um, laying of the landscape of considerations uh, about medication safety. And what I'll be doing is transitioning on over to um, uh, more of a focus on safety per se. And I would strongly encourage you to Um, and consider the possibility of incorporating some reflection questions into um, the content that I'll be sharing with you. Um, We've heard a lot about what's important to consider for medications. I'll just share a few snapshots around medication safety to build on what Dr. Keebler has shared. And what I'd really love you to think about in this discussion is how can we shift our focus to ensure not that we're ignoring our professional uh, responsibilities um, as nurses um, and and focusing purely on reacting to error, but thinking about how we can prevent um, error in the first place. And It's my hope that you leave here with one concrete thing that you can do or think about differently um, a, after this session is over today. I wanted to start with a few comments about medication harm, and it's been well-documented and you've heard um, evidence of that already. Uh, But earlier this year, a study came to our attention uh, by uh, Dr. David Bates and colleagues who were examining the frequency and types of harm in random hospital admissions across 11 hospitals in my home state of Massachusetts, and this was from 2018 data. So the context for what I'm sharing with you is pre-pandemic. Over the 2,800 admissions that they reviewed, at least one adverse event was found in every four admissions and many of those patients had more than one adverse adverse event during their stay. A third of the admissions had a severity level of serious or higher. 23 percent were deemed preventable and, uh, uh, and uh, patients who had an adverse event had a length of stay that was nearly twice as long as those who did not. As you can see on the right hand side of this slide a majority of the events were associated with medications, and other studies um, that have examined the frequency and types of harm also find that medication-related uh, adverse events top the list of reported harms. Now, uh, we mentioned that we've talked a, a bit about technology in this discussion today, and I, we have done a lot of great things to address medication error over the years that are supported by technology. This is a slide that reports on a prospective observational study that was done in Dutch hospitals that examined the relationship between one of those technologies, barcode-assisted medication administration, and the workarounds associated with that technology and medication errors. And the investigators found that workarounds occurred in 66% of medication administrations, and they were associated with a large number of medication administration errors. Common workarounds will probably not be a surprise to many of you, but they include not scanning at all or, um, you know, scanning a missing identification band that's not attached to the patient um, or not scanning because the band's not available. And other examples included scanning incorrect meds or multiple meds or ignoring barcode alerts. Um, many of the errors that were identified in this study uh, will were associated with omissions where meds were not given, administration of drugs that were not ordered, and wrong dose administrations. So this data reinforces that workarounds are associated with medical administration, um, med administration errors, even when the technology that's available to prevent those errors is available and suggest that it's really important for us to not believe that just because we've implemented technology that we are effectively safe. There's a lot to think about here, particularly in understanding how humans are interfacing with the technology, and sometimes the over-reliance on technology. This is information from a medical professional liability company, Covaris, who I have no relationship with, but I thought it would be helpful to just share this slide because it provides some evidence of nurse-involved medication claims. And when Covarris examined over 4,600 claims that occurred between 2018 and uh, 2021, they identified 850 specific events that directly involved registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, or student nurses. And I know we have a composition of all of you on the call today. 114 of those events, or 18%, involved nurses and a medication error. And 39% of the events resulted in a patient death. Now, not surprisingly, and you heard this with Dr. Keebler's great overview, many of the patients that we care for today have comorbidities um, and are on a host of medications. And uh, the complexity of patients and the attention that we need to place on medication safety becomes increasingly important over time as we see some of these changes and trends in medication use. Now, I'd like to direct our focus to um, some foundational considerations for safe and reliable care. And I know that many of your organizations are doing work on what we call high reliability, which describes an organizational culture that strives to achieve error-free performance and safety in every procedure that occurs every time all while operating in industries and environments like healthcare or nuclear or aviation industries that are complex and high risk. So in healthcare, what we're aiming to do for failure-free operation is to support the delivery of safe, timely, effective, efficient, equitable, and patient-centered care. And the quest for safe and reliable care really requires our organizations and everyone who works in it to embrace and embody the vision goals and core values to eliminate harm to prevent harm from occurring in the first place, p- uh, place and not just to say this on a website or on a piece of paper but to encode this in our daily work and this requires as many of you know leaders who are setting the tone for and stewarding and holding themselves and others accountable for eliminating harm and cultures of an organization matter very, very deeply. But I thought when I would share on the right-hand side of this slide is an image that I credit to my um, board chair, Dr. Jerry Hickson, that reminds us that safety is a system property. And it's a product of both intentionally designed systems and professional accountability at all levels. And it's a constant balancing act. So I would... I would invite you to reflect on the question can we say that we are safe in our organizations in our daily practice and i would i would propose that we are only as safe as the moment that we are in and as safe as we are proactively designing our systems to be safe and our professional accountability again on that moment by moment basis now I wanted to uh, share some information uh, from uh, someone who I've had the honor of working with for many years. Um, Many of you may recognize Dr. Lucian Leap, for whom our IHI Lucian Leap Institute or safety think tank is named. And Dr. Leap is globally recognized as the parent of the modern safety movement. For decades, um, he has stated that the single greatest impediment to error prevention is that we continue to punish people for making mistakes. And on the bottom of this slide is a quote from noted wrongologist Katherine Schultz, who discusses our human fascination with wrongness and has stated that if it's sweet to be right, then let's not deny it. It's downright savory to point out that someone else is wrong. And if we just reflect for a moment on what happens in our workplaces when something goes wrong and some of the common considerations that come up, one of the very first questions that we hear repeatedly in our work is that folks ask, who did it? Often followed by, how could they have done it? And passing judgment on humans for their failures. Now, another person who's uh, really examined uh, this phenomenon and what it means for healthcare and our ability to be able to make progress in safety is Amy Edmondson, who's an emeritus member of our Lucian Leap Institute and a world renowned organizational behaviorist and expert, who's really credited with expanding what we know and understand about psychological safety which is the belief that one won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns or mistakes. And in teams, which is what we all work in and typically interprofessional, it refers to team members believing that they can take risk without being shamed by other team members. So the knowledge that one will be treated with respect when one does voice a concern and that the organization will act on concerns is essential for safe care. But what we know from our studies of patient safety culture is that this is consistently one of the lowest scoring domains found across all healthcare settings. And to Dr. Leap's point, this can really inhibit the very actions and behaviors that are necessary for safe and reliable care and for learning to continuously improve the safety and reliability of care. And uh, Dr. Keebler already mentioned that the very recent case of Radhan Devad, um, who was criminally charged um, after a fatal medication error. And we know that this has kind of resurrected a lot of concerns and attention to the importance of building psychological safety and trust in our work as nurses and across the teams in which we work. This slide reflects the work of Professor Patrick Hudson, and I'm gonna tie some of these concepts together as I show you this slide, uh, which is crosswalking some of the levels of safe and reliable care, more so on the left-hand side of the slide with the concepts of psychological safety. And if we go down to the lowest level of the slide where we see pathological or unmindful cultures, they're very fear-based and chronically complacent, and it really doesn't matter so much what we do, sometimes as long as we don't get caught and in these cultures there can be overt disrespect that's tolerated and psychological safety isn't really recognized as an organizational need and then next up the list are reactive cultures where organizations might do a big safety drive when something goes wrong and sometimes that emphasis is temporary In these organizations, psychological safety might be variable across people and units, and whether someone might feel comfortable speaking up can be highly dependent upon who they're around. Moving on up the ladder is the systematic and calculative level of maturity, where systems are being put in place to manage most hazards, and there's organizational awareness that speaking up to share concerns is important and related training on doing so is available and reinforced. Up the ladder one more rung is the proactive level where organizations methodically anticipate and aim to prevent problems before they occur, where leaders model and expect behaviors that promote psychological safety. And then at the top, at the generative level are organizations that are wired to produce safety with habitual excellence They're always looking at areas of risk, and they don't rest on laurels of past safety performance. And in these organizations, psychological safety is a primary function, and more importantly, a competency of leaders and others who work in the organization, and it's constantly modeled throughout the organization. Now, the characterization that I'm um, showing here isn't necessarily a fixed state. And I know that many of you have probably lived through some of the movement around this characterization in the organizations in which you work. You can evolve up, and that's the direction that we hope we're all moving in. But it's also possible that organizations might devolve um, and have setbacks. And sometimes this happens when there are leadership changes and where that firm commitment to a core value of safety might be interrupted or modified in some way. So I might, I might encourage you to think about where your organization is at um, and uh, what the kinds of things um, are that are characteristic of psychological safety in your worlds in which you work. And also, and we'll talk increasingly about this, what you can do to impact that. Now, Dr. Keebler promised we'd talk about the five rights. So um, I'm gonna spend a few moments walking you through the uh, five rights and connecting the dots with the building blocks that we've shared so far in this conversation. And this conversation is especially important because one of the major ways that we teach about medication safety and um, the frameworks that we often use are associated with the five rights of administration particularly from the lens of optimizing human performance and ensuring human compliance. One of the um, many resources that we have available to you on the slide at the end of this section um, references what I'm sharing with you now, and this is a publication for the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, and it's titled The Five Rights, A Destination Without a Map. It emphasizes that simply holding individuals accountable for giving the right drug to the right patient and the right dose by the right route at the right time, or however other many rights that we put on, because we know there's five rights and nine rights and 12 rights, fails miserably to ensure medication safety. Um, The rationale here, which is important to keep in mind, is that the five rights fails to acknowledge the human factors and the system weaknesses and that they contribute to errors. So with that balancing board that I showed you with professional accountability and intentionally designed systems, there can be undue burden placed on humans uh, for the full responsibility for safe care and sometimes little reflection on the importance of the intentional design of systems. And this um, publication goes on to state that Failure to follow the five rights perpetuates the mistaken belief that healthcare practitioners can be held individually accountable for achieving these goals, and that none of the rights, in fact, provide procedural guidance to describe how to accomplish the desired outcome in a particular environment of care. Now, I wanna make it very, very clear that um, this is not to suggest that the five rights are unimportant and they shouldn't be used. What we're trying to convey is that we have humans who are working in a very highly complex, safety critical and socio-technical system that is the healthcare industry. So reliance on human operators and our vigilance as the primary and sometimes sole strategy is really quite brittle and inconsistent with what we know is necessary for safety. Um, So while human vigilance matters, and this is where we wanna get into what are the kinds of things that we can be doing to build this more uh, systems-based approach to safety, is that we need to ensure that leaders and team members are designing layers of protection that are systems-oriented and that anticipate and address what we know are human limitations and it's incumbent upon us to advocate not just as leaders but of everyone on this call whether you've been in practice for decades whether you're a student going into practice to advocate for the design and implementation of, of protections um, things that foster cultures that are safe and fair and just and we'll talk about that in a moment and that minimize the opportunity for human error that create opportunities for us to recover from error and that consistently identify and mitigate risk uh, so that um, we can uh, prevent um, these situations in the first place. So one of the takeaways that I invite you to reflect on would be to think about how is your organization applying the five rights or however many rights you have from this systems lens and, and how we can direct some of our energies to proactive elimination of risk in the first place. And this kind of takes us back to some of the workaround conversations we had uh, when we think about variation. And a lot of what we do in safety is try to eliminate eliminate variation. But variation occurs at all different levels of organizations. At the strategic level, variation generally occurs uh, occurs, uh, with boards and at the executive level. And it can result in having so many priorities or misaligned priorities that don't really reflect the organization's goals. Operational variation, a little bit different. And that occurs in the systems and the structures that are really intended to support the goals of the organization. And this is where we often see workarounds generate from. Because with operational variation, what we're seeing is humans that are trying to prop up structures and processes, and what happens as a result of that is we can drift into a normalization of deviation, uh, which is very often, again, started because of system um, uh, operational variation and system level changes. But we tend to spend so much of our time on clinical variation, which happens at the people level that we've been talking about. And this is really what we refer to as the intention getter for quality improvement. But our efforts to reduce clinical variation, as many of you know, often lack rigor. And sometimes they're done, um, you know, uh, reactively and hastily. If again, you think about the cultural maturity matrix that I showed earlier. So these and these efforts oftentimes um, will tell us to try harder, do better, train and retrain and retrain and retrain, uh, without necessarily looking very broadly at what the other opportunities are to address and minimize variation to advance progress and safety. So again, this balancing uh, board uh, view comes into play. Now, um. Talking about uh, the shift to better balance professional accountability and intentionally designed systems is so important for our takeaways from this conversation. When workarounds happen, however, I would invite you to reflect on what happens in your organization. What happens in your own individual practice? Do we ignore them? Uh, Do we blame and criticize and punish humans when they're occurring, uh, when their behavior and practices deviate from what we expect and what's noted in policies and procedures? Because I think if we flip the equation and think about those as important signals, that there's an opportunity to address something in the system of care. Um, So I would encourage us to build some of these questions into our analysis of what's happening when workarounds occur to maybe ask how often, um, why are they occurring? What could go wrong if they continue? And what can and should be done before harm occurs? For example, it might be because the technologies that we have in place that we have hoped would serve as good defenses to prevent error might be experiencing downtime, or they may not be available across all locations in the areas in which we work. Or it could be that the implementation or the selection of those technologies has not been done with the end user input for those who are um, responsible for the daily use of those. So what we create in this scenario are latent failures. Um, These are risks that are sometimes unnoticed or, again, silently endorsed uh, uh, until something goes wrong. And I liken this in an article um, that's referenced here to the lullaby rockaby baby, where we tie the baby in the cradle to the treetop and we let the wind gently lull the baby to sleep, and all is good so long as that strong wind doesn't come along. And when it does, it stresses and weakens the branches, and the baby in the cradle come tumbling down. So I can think of no better profession than nurses when it comes to medication safety It's certainly our partners in pharmacy and, and, and other colleagues on the healthcare team to be able to, again, broaden our lens around uh, what's happening to be able to identify this and to prevent some of these cradles from tumbling uh, down on the tree. Now, another point uh, that was brought up was this notion of fair and just culture framework. And uh, this is such important, um, you know, work and focus. Um, One model is pictured here on the screen. But one of the things that we often see is we we, uh, pull out the fair and just culture framework after something goes wrong. And uh, not infrequently, there can be a tendency to deal with individuals based on Uh, what has happened as a result of something going wrong, uh, where a similar inadvertent or unintended error might be dealt with differently if a patient dies or experiences serious harm as compared to a patient who experiences no harm. So we might want to incorporate our thinking um, with this framework, Um, again, uh, complement not only how we think about supporting Um, you know, um, our staff uh, when something goes wrong, but thinking about how we architect systems in the first place so that if something does happen um, and it goes wrong, we're not arbitrarily blaming somebody for an unintended human error with consequences that might far exceed um, the realities of this. Because when we do that, we know that we shut down systems of reporting and sharing and learning. And what we're doing is reinforcing what Dr. Lucian Leap mentioned um, in that slide that I showed you earlier. Along with this um, proactive approach to rethinking perhaps the five rights and redeploying the framework of a fair and just culture with a bit of a different lens is um, the importance of thinking about the hierarchy of controls. Um, And this is a framework that helps us think about whether our actions are stronger or weaker in mitigating risk or addressing adverse events. And this is another graphic from the very fine Institute uh, for Safe Medication Practices. On the bottom of this slide, what you see are low leverage interventions, which again are commonly deployed when we're trying to address uh, things that have gone wrong, very commonly through root cause analyses. Um, And on the upper portion are actions that have more high leverage um, that are associated with looking at improving the systems in which humans work. So if we're down on the bottom end and we, we think about corrective action plans, for example, through root cause analyses, again, that emphasis on, well, let's tell people to do better. Let's have them do another course. Those are not unimportant actions, but relying again on humans can be a very brittle and fragile safety strategy. So, we want to be able to build this out uh, much more with much more strength uh, to optimize the environments in which humans perform. So, let me summarize with three key points. Um, first, we've touched on the importance of facilitating a safe and a low risk system. Um, with emphasis on fostering safe and uh, just cultures that encourage reporting um, of risk, um, but activating people uh, to be able to create solutions that include things like technologies and other strong actions to prevent harm. So important in this, um, and this builds upon Dr. Kibla's work as well, too, is engaging patients and care partners um, in the process, very commonly Uh, We are designing and and thinking about how to facilitate systems without their input, and patients and family members see so much. We have so much to learn from them, and uh, recognizing that they are critical partners in this role means that facilitating a safe and low-risk system should be designed with their perspective in mind. Secondly, um, that we are actively embracing opportunities to identify and mitigate risk. I'm confident that none of us wants to just keep chasing errors. We we are all collectively committed to the prevention of those. Um, and really thinking, again, about some of the things we can do as professionals and our own accountability and our own practice, thinking about how we can broaden our reach um, into um, identifying the system's opportunities for improvement. And thinking about um, what we can do also to... Uh, support the conditions for safer care, including deprescribing of unnecessary meds and creating work environments with, that minimize distractions and interruptions and eliminate low-value work, so our attention can be fully focused on ensuring that care is safe. And I do want to call out um, in this um, era of healthcare, where a larger percent of our workforce is comprised of contingent colleagues. That's our reality. Uh, but thinking about what our organizations are doing from the perspective of orienting and onboarding um, anyone who comes to work in the system, even if they are with us for a short period of time. And in our research at IHI, we have learned that there's very little attention to safety reporting systems um, and a lot of the basic safety practices to support patient and workforce safety as new colleagues come in for brief periods of time. And then the third point on responding to learning from and widely sharing events, um, strengthening the critical thinking that we do to prevent um, events, and as well as responding to events, learning from what goes well, and supporting patients, um, their families and staff, not only in the immediate aftermath of when something goes wrong, but longitudinally. The final um, slide that I have is um, a thought that I wanted to share with you that really um, was born out of um, an experience I had overseeing um, students uh, who were um, obviously in clinical settings and giving medications. And I oversaw um, a student um, administer a look-alike, sound-alike medication. Uh, There was no patient harm in this experience. It did not matter to me that there was no patient harm. I was devastated because I had come to that role um, not recognizing my own human limitations. And for years, I perseverated about my responsibility um, and my failure, to be very honest with you. And I experienced a lot of the things that we talked about in environments where something goes wrong. Who did it? How could they have done it? They're a faculty member, it makes it even worse. Um, So there were a lot of building blocks here that um, were were deep concern to me. And over the years as I've recognized and learned about human fallibility and what um, goes well um, naturally as humans and some of the things that don't go well, I started this practice on every Friday where I would ask myself in the last week, what are the things that I did this week where I was a culture carrier or where I was a culture barrier? And every week, I can reassure you there is something in every column of what I have done. I I spend some time reflecting on how it might have happened. And I also think about what I might address and correct and do differently. So this is a small act; it takes a few minutes at most, but it takes me back to that balance beam that I talked about. Um, you know, looking at my own professional accountability uh, for how I perform in my day-to-day work, how I can contribute to improving the systems in which I work. And I will say that it's um, the the pain of of guilting myself and feeling horrible about making um, the mistake that I did um, has has really kind of shifted as I try to balance the practice between um, recognizing what goes well, what I can be doing differently, and kind of monitoring my growth over time. So with that, I will turn things back over to Dr. Jelenas and thank you so much for your attention.
0: Wow, culture carrier or culture barrier. What an important reflection for us all. And the remaining time that we have, we'd like to answer as many questions as we can. You can type your questions in the Q&A box, or you can email us at webinars at We already have some questions coming in. And uh, Kim, I'd like to start with you. Um, You mentioned reducing liability. What specific medication resources will best support my practice in a liability claim?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I've done my fair share of legal reviews. And when I do that, I'm always um, looking at the guidelines to make sure that uh, medications are being used the appropriate way. Um, The other thing that's really helpful for me in my clinical practice, and I mentioned earlier, is the um, free Hippocrates tool that you can put on your smartphone. Um, You can also pay for it, which gives you more um, resources, but the free version, um, you can look up the medication, the drug, uh, the generic name, um, and drug-drug interactions, which is a great tool. Um, That and as well as, you know, looking in the guidelines and using uh, when sometimes when I'm uh, using something that may be a different, a different medication or something, I will actually document that I am following uh, the guideline recommendations. Thank
0: you. We have uh, another audience question about, is this recorded? And if you look at the bottom of your slide, you will see that this webinar will be available on demand very soon at myamericannurse.com slash webinars. Kim, continuing with you, what are some of the most reliable, quick, and easiest resources to use at the bedside?
1: Um, I, again, I think Apocrates. Uh, uh, You know, some places or practice cultures have uh, protocols that Mm they put together, sometimes being familiar with the protocol uh, before you go into the bedside. Um, But as far as medications, looking things up, uh, I think you can even Google, you know, Google the package insert and look through things.
0: Thank you. And if we didn't fully answer your question, please just uh, text us back in the Q&A box. Patricia, I'd like to come to you, because you mentioned um, the hierarchy of improvement actions and steps that we can take to try to mitigate risk. I really like this question. Every time we have a medication error, our risk department does a root cause analysis, sends us back to training, and yet we keep having errors. So d- is is this an indication that RCAs just don't work, or should we be doing something differently? How would you approach that?
2: Uh, so, Lily, this is such a timely question. We are just uh, completing three months of extensive reviews and analysis uh, with healthcare organizations around the country about mm-hmm. cause analyses um, and whether or not um, they are creating learning. Um, I I did allude to some of this uh, prior to seeing this question, and um, you know what we're finding is that there's incredible variation in how people conduct the analysis of adverse events. Um, there is There are some very structured uh, resources out there. Uh, one that we have that's readily available is called RCA Squared, which is a root cause analysis and action tool. And it provides uh, a pretty comprehensive framework for how RCAs can be conducted over time. Um, but, but to get to the question, first of all, um, a lot of folks, uh, will stop reporting um, any of their near misses or concerns when there's no acknowledgement um, that those concerns have happened or when they don't hear back after uh, an analysis has been done. Uh, so I, I want to emphasize no matter what approach you're using that ensuring that the culture is psychologically safe, that reporting systems are readily available Um, That there's, um, you know, adequate information in those systems, for example, to be able to even focus in on the inequities that might be associated with events, um, you know, and and questioning whether um, the systems have um, stratification of sociodemographic data that can help us understand events. We tend to churn these out because a regulatory requirement exists that we do a root cause analysis. Um, If you look very broadly at root cause analyses, um, you know, a lot of uh, what we're doing is repeating the same types of errors overall and not aggregating the understanding and the learning from those errors. So I think that's super important. And then uh, this question also referenced that hierarchy of controls, um, again, with this emphasis on human performance at the expense of not really focusing in on the systems level of work, I fear will continue to be in these cycles of whack-a-moles, um, as we call them, and continually repeating what we're doing overall. But this broad learning within and across organizations is so important. And some of the resources that we have and the Institute for Safe Medication Practices has and that the um, American Nurse Journal has can be really, really helpful toward amplifying the strength and and shoring up the defenses um, that we have, again, to mitigate risk before harm happens. You know, your
0: emphasis on feedback loops is so important. I was just reading a, a study at Johns Hopkins University and uh, the lack of reporting of near misses where we miss those opportunities. Uh, near miss reporting goes down if there's not the feedback loop that someone came back to you and said oh i acknowledge what that near miss was and here's what we did about it so thank you for emphasizing that concept i'm going to do my best to try to get to the meat of this next question um, do you have suggested resources for school nurses to use when the opportunity for barcoding or dispenser systems are not available do either of you have some suggestions for medication safety technology or support systems for school nurses
2: you know this is this is i'm i'm pausing because i so appreciate this question um, and you know the limited emphasis that we sometimes have on um you know safety and understanding safety and harms and opportunities in um, settings that are a little bit uh, less traditional overall. Um, you know I'm I don't know the exact way that um, you know folks are practicing my guess is that it could be very um, again reliant on human vigilance and human memory um, I don't know if there are formalized documentation systems in place but I think it's a great avenue uh, for us to maybe explore and learn a whole lot more about Dr. Keebler, is there anything that you'd like to add from what you uh, know and understand um, beyond perhaps one of the obvious too is the, the frequent interface. We talked about the patient and the family connectedness and the interface, I would say, uh, between um, you know the student and the family members
1: as appropriate. Uh, in my clinical practice, I was just thinking, uh, I put the uh, lot number and the um, expiration date in my documentation, if I'm using specific medications, um, you know, sometimes you'll be looking at the uh, expiration date and the medication is actually expired. But I think mm-hmm. that's a, a good way to document and keep track of, uh, you know, the medications that you're using by also including the lot number that identifies that specific medication. So that's I a
2: might be um, others um, who could chat in, if you know of any solutions um, or have any thoughts of references as well To feel free to chat those in and we can um, pass those along.
0: And Patricia from the American Nurse Journal editorial standpoint, I think having those medication safety resources for various care settings, whether it's hospices, school mm-hmm. nurses, et cetera, uh, that might be time well spent. Look for that in the future from the journal. Mm-hmm. I'll take one more question here. Um, Boy, oh, I can relate to this, all of us who have served at the bedside for some time. I'm a busy nurse under a lot of pressure, and workarounds seem to be a reality in today's practice, and I'll verify that. I take mm-hmm. shortcuts just to get the job done. So you mentioned the concept of drifting into harm. How do I prevent myself individually as a practitioner at the bedside from drifting into harm?
2: Yeah, Um, Drifting is human nature. Um, We have a tendency when things are not optimized to be able to problem solve in real time and do workarounds. Um, The question that is is here, I think is especially important because in many cases, particularly with some of the disruptions in um, academic programs and clinical practice uh, settings for incoming nurses and with a lot of our colleagues who are now rotating through assignments on a contingent basis, um, really just being very, very mindful of the fact that um, this is something that we are inclined to do um, as problem solvers, but also to be able to um, maybe look for pathways to normalize the the understanding um, and the realities of, of workarounds. We see in safety huddles, for example, that there are common questions that people, um, you know, can be used as prompts to be able to say, is there anything that's working right now that's not working as well as we need it to? Are there any downtime issues or other things um, that we need to explore? Where are we seeing um, variation and availability of um, access to EHRs and some of these safety technologies overall? So I might suggest um, that thinking about how to embed this in huddles, Uh, could be a very good way to socialize conversations about workarounds versus kind of tuck them away and cover them up because the socialization of this is what nurses are so good at and our problem-solving skills are so good. Uh, But the other parties in our systems, leaders and others, sometimes don't know that these workarounds are happening as well, too. Uh, So being able to identify and think about what this could mean if we didn't um, address this, um, I think is something that I'd encourage people to take to heart in our daily, day-to-day practice um, and then look for ways to be able to um, build awareness and advocacy around addressing those opportunities.
0: Thank you. Our own personal accountability and disclosure helps build a safer healthcare system. We're out of time. I'd like to thank Dr. Kim Keebler and Patricia McGaffigan for their expert commentary today. And thank you for joining us. As I mentioned earlier, this webinar will be available on demand soon at myamericannurse.com webinars. Feel free to contact us at any time. Continue your safety journal. Bye-bye now.